0: The Afrikaners always believed in the autonomy of nationalism, if I could put it that way. Uh, it believes that once the parameters of nationalism has been drawn, then there are certain uh, determinants which operate within those parameters which determine the whole nature and philosophy of the people, and which also expresses the uh, ethos of that particular community. Such uh, uh, a determinant, for example, is their own language, which is Afrikaans. Uh, It is their religion, which is uh, basically uh, Presbyterian, Calvinistic, Protestant. Uh, It is the concept that uh, uh, God has got a uh, a supreme plan for everybody, and that uh,
1: it is basically a uh, a white community. It's the age-old story, the name of God invoked in justification of something that is, of itself, evil. The speaker in this case is Professor S.J. Olivier, the White Rector and Vice-Chancellor of the Indian University in Durban, South Africa, and a senior member of the Brotherbund, the near-secret Afrikaner society dedicated to white supremacy. In South Africa, where Afrikaner and English live with African, Indian and mixed race, B is for Bantu, B is for Boer and B is for Brit. But before that and above all, A is for Apartheid. Music of the West of Black America mixes with the African rhythms of the drums and shakers as urban blacks in Soweto near Johannesburg develop their township jazz. Soweto stands for South West Townships and its 18 component parts house around a million Africans. At least that's the official story, for in fact the population of Soweto may be nearer two million. In South Africa blacks need permission to live anywhere and those who don't have it risk and often get jailed. So, Soweto's illegals sharing matchbox, unelectrified houses with their extended families don't fill in census forms. Life for an African, Indian, or coloured person in South Africa is a daily hassle with the Population Registration Act, which categorises them racially, the Land Act, which gives 87% of South Africa for 4 million whites and 13% for 22 million blacks, the Homeland Citizens Act, which says that Africans are not South Africans but but Puritswanans, Transcayans, Vendans and a series of other nationalities. The Group Areas Act, which states where each race must live, and the Influx Control Laws, which regulate the number of Africans needed at any time to service the white economy, and which include the infamous pass laws. These are the five pillars of apartheid. Any one of them could provide material to fill this programme to overflowing. But today we offer no more than an impression of apartheid the system of separation which denies to some 22 million South Africans the vote and a host of human rights in the land of their birth. We'll hear from whites, the first-class citizens, from coloreds, the second-class people, from Indians in the third class, and from the Africans, far, far behind in fourth.
2: Well, it means, for one thing, that uh, you have to live, whether you like it or not, in a ghetto situation like Soweto. 20 kilometers away from where you work and the kind of houses you have are what we call the matchbox type. It means that your children are supposed to receive a special kind of education designed for blacks called Bantu education and it is this um, education that was the immediate cause. Uh, of the 1976 um, uprising because they were forcing people to use Africans, it means that even when you say are a doctor you are qualified um, at the same university with your white counterpart and you're doing the same job you don't get the same salary and then sort of ordinary things you've got constantly to remember that there are still places where you can't go in the same entrance as whites or the same exits. It's funny actually, I mean sometimes um, people go to a railway station, they use separate entrances and separate exits, they sit in separate uh, uh, coaches on the train, then they come out, and they come out onto the street, and they have got to meet again. I suppose, I mean, that if they could manage it, they might divide up the air and say, this is black oxygen and this is white oxygen.
1: They can't do it. Bishop Desmond Tutu's general secretary of the South African Council of Churches, an outspoken champion of black people's rights. But the white rulers have rationalized apartheid and call it separate development with separate freedoms. Let's hear their side. Minister for National Education, that's white education, Dr. Gerrit Viljoen,
3: who's also chairman of the Brother Bond. I think in terms of the economy, everybody realizes that that is interdependent and uh, very much really integrated. And separate freedoms is a a further expression of the idea of self-determination, especially as far as the different black or African uh, national groups in South Africa are concerned. They are based mainly or originating predominantly from certain specific geographic areas, which have been their traditional homes throughout history. And separate freedoms uh, means that these different black national groups should be given the opportunity to develop their traditional areas, uh, expanded and consolidated according to a, a land expansion program, which has been going for some time already, into autonomous and ultimately independent uh, national states. I would say this is basically the concept of separate freedom. And it has already been accepted by and implemented by three of the uh, black national groups, the Trans-Kai, Popo and Venda.
1: Not a view of history shared by the Africans I met. Professor S.J. Olivier, we've heard from already. Well, he has a pat explanation for the Group Areas Act.
0: It's not an easy problem to resolve just overnight because the, the uh, effect that uh, any number of, of, of people or influx of people into a certain area would have on that area could actually stir up more ill feeling and uh, breed resentments uh, perhaps far greater then is considered to be the case where certain group areas have been allocated.
1: Dr. Dennis Worrell is chairman of the Constitutional Committee of the President's Council. That's a new body set up to plan the future while still excluding the blacks. This is how he describes his task in the Council, which has succeeded a parliamentary commission on the Constitution. The commission felt that it wasn't really equipped to to do this, and so it recommended the
0: creation of the President's Council with the broad purpose of drawing up a new constitutional dispensation for South Africa, which accommodates uh, the interests of persons of colour while at the same time
1: uh, takes
0: care of the interests of white South Africans.
1: It sounds so smooth and easy, yet here's how it can devastate a person's
4: life. Cape Town. Minister of Internal Affairs Chris Hoyness said yesterday 152 people that had their racial classification changed last year. A total of 133 Cape coloureds became white. One white became Cape Coloured, as did four Indians. Three Malays became Indians. Six Cape coloureds became Indians. Three whites became Chinese. One white and one Indian became Malay. Behind those figures lie how many tragedies? Are families split?
1: Possibly. Does each of them have to uproot a whole life and move to the race area approved by the Group Areas Act? Yes. Man's inhumanity to
4: man. And another newspaper story. The Athlone District Advice Office has instructed lawyers for Mrs Virginia Yappie to appeal against her conviction of being in the Cape illegally. Mrs Yappie, 37, was found guilty by the Langa Commissioner's Court on February the 10th of being in the prescribed area of Cape Town for more than 72 hours. She has tried unsuccessfully for the past 14 years to get permission to live with her husband legally in Cape Town, where he has worked for the past 25 years, as a chef at the Constantia Neck restaurant. No comment needed. The most recent phase of black opposition to apartheid
1: began in June 1976, when Soweto students boycotted their schools and demonstrated against Bantu education, The curriculum that former Prime Minister H.F. Ververt
4: said would ensure that there could be no place for Africans in the European community above the level of certain forms of labour. Now, the government spends
1: nine times more on the education of each white child than on each black child. White teachers have 20 pupils, African teachers 48. The 1976 protest began when 20,000 schoolchildren marched against having to be taught in Afrikaans. Wandili Zulu of the Congress of South African Students was one of them. You see, before, that is before
5: 1955, in the early 40s, the educational system in South Africa, it was better according to our parents. Well, so they said, because they are telling us of uh, the royal readers, which was more or less the same education as the whites. But after realising that, is the blacks are competing with the whites in the educational field or industry. They felt that they should introduce an education which will indoctrinate the black man. That is, the black man must always be inferior to a white man. And uh, even if you are at work, you can be of the same standard, but you cannot be having the same qualities of that particular job. So they are really suppressing the black man that is not to compete with a white man. Has the to introduce the bantu education on June on June sixteen? It was decided that is all the students in Soweto have to go and gather in Orlando Stadium, and we knew exactly that is it will be very difficult for us to get entry in Orlando Stadium because the the gates are locked, and uh, we knew that the gates were locked, and it would be very difficult for us to get. Entry, and uh, we knew that well. The police will come in, and uh, there will be a confrontation. Fortunately, unfortunately, the police came in before we reached Orlando Stadium, and uh, without asking a word, they just uh, throw some tear gas canisters, and uh, and shooting followed, and one student uh, died, and. Uh, because of seeing a student, Hector Peterson, died, a very small boy of 13 years, we felt that we have to destroy the government. Now we went on rampage, destroying the buses, petrol buses, the bottle stores, the schools. Because of the anger we got from, because those people, they should have asked first, that is what is going on, what are you protesting about, then we should have told them. So that's where, that's how the Soto riots started in 1976.
1: Hector Peterson was the first of at least 176 to die that week. Pendile Mavoso was shot in the leg at one of the funerals.
6: When I was shot, I was attending a funeral was on Sunday. The funeral of a student who died in police custody. We were entering the cemetery and suddenly they came a blow. That had to say something in Afrikaans which I didn't understand as we were demonstrating against Afrikaans' medium of instruction in school, in most—in all high schools and secondary schools, so we were shot, and I lost my leg.
1: Um, you were just walking into the, the cemetery, oh, peacefully, yes. oh. behind the coffin?
6: Yes, behind the coffin. We were walking behind the coffin, and we were shot. Others were shot, carrying the coffin. In fact, the shooting did show me how we are are being treated in this country. There's no justice in this country. They shot us because they were just doing, it was injustice. If there was justice, I don't think they were going to shoot us. For instance, if it were white children were demonstrating They weren't going to be shot. Because we are black, we had to to be shot.
1: That was October 1976. Pendile Mavoso sits on a stool these days at the door of her parents' matchbox house, her one good leg swinging aimlessly beneath her. 21 years old, her life needlessly ruined. What the students now want is the support of their parents and their teachers. Nick Mokhotusi is organiser for the Teachers' Action Committee, a small group of teachers who have resigned their posts to research better educational methods for black youth?
7: The difference between Bantu education and that type of education that we as blacks want, or as we residents in South Africa want, is that Bantu education is inhibiting, it doesn't uh, give a, an opportunity to students to learn and to expand mentally. This is one uh, bad effect of uh, a bad education. It makes uh, the people to feel inferior, whereas at uh, the same time they must see other people on the
1: other side of the line. Can you give me, me examples it. of how the education system makes people feel inferior?
7: Uh, for instance, if one uh, goes through the textbooks, it is always found that uh, certain textbooks and school readers uh depict a black mostly black as savages and white as heroes and everything that's white is good everything that's black is no good this is how and this takes place starts right from uh, early age from substandards right through the schooling system for instance uh, people's names if you don't have an african name it's said to be unchristian you have to have a European name in school and this
1: was also encouraged by teachers. Can you tell me something about the the, the mood in Soweto uh, in 76 and 77? Uh,
7: during 76 I can say it was really bad between uh, school children and teachers, especially those who seem not to be in line with uh, the students thoughts, who seem to be aloof of what was happening just saying that uh, half a loaf is better than no bread at all. Whereas there were a number of students who were dying because of this very half a loaf they were talking about.
1: After 76, the adults of Soweto set up the Committee of Ten to coordinate their long-term resistance. The committee's chairman is Dr Ntato Motlana, one of the most important internal leaders of African nationalism. Here he talks about the committee's priorities.
8: To mobilize, to organize, to politicize, to be spokesmen for the people of Soweto. And in so doing, become the standard bearer for communities throughout the country.
1: That's our task
8: at the local level.
1: How successful have you been uh, since 1976, 1977 in in making progress here? I think our success should be judged by the fact that uh, 76,
8: 77, 78. The standard-bearers for the struggle for rights for liberation were the children. The police were very hard on these poor children. The leadership had been creamed off to jail, to detention, into exile, or even to death. And you know, one watched with sorrow, really, how the adults simply refused to involve themselves, what was essentially their task. The civic association's job has been to mobilise the silent majority, the parents, the um, tenants, people who pay the rent, who, who, the workers in other words, to take up the cudgels on their own behalf. And we've succeeded, I think, in the sense that many of our meetings today are attended by 90% of the people there are adults. And I think this is a beautiful thing, that people are at last beginning to take responsibility for their own affairs. I think that's a large measure of our success here.
1: Well, on the overall, do you see apartheid being dismantled piece by piece at the moment, or do you think that they are just involved in a in a different way of achieving the same end? There
8: are many, there are many people who see, who say that apartheid has finally failed. I don't share that view. I, 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 I'm not convinced that there's been any change, fundamental change, whatever, in this country. By fundamental change, the, it, fundamental change must mean structural changes that must involve the black man as a south african and as long as the government is convinced legislates and acts as if the black man was indeed a foreigner there can be no change here we cannot talk of change and i know that pw P- burta has said even about the president's council that uh, the black man is not being included and i don't care what little change takes place like my admission to the Carlton hotel as long as my fundamental right to South African citizenship
1: is not acknowledged, we cannot speak of any change whatever. Do you think that there are problems amongst uh, the, the, the black community because of the divisions between, um, shall we say, the ANC, uh, ZAPO, Chief Butelezi, uh different organisations all seeming to be going in perhaps slightly different directions? Oh no, there, there aren't any problems like that. And there are only two groups
8: in South Africa among the blacks. The one group is that of the collaborationists, those who think they can use the system to change the system. Here I include the community councillors, the homeland leaders, the Gachabutelis. The second group is, are those who, who refuse simply to, to, to collaborate in their own oppression. Here I include people like ourselves, the ANC, PAC, the exiles, and so on. And as far as these are concerned, the only difference really is About methods. There may be some differences about ideology. But basically, we think that if we don't collaborate in our own oppression, we'll get somewhere.
1: The question is, will the other non-whites back the blacks? The government's latest policy, the so-called Berta Reforms, is to consolidate what they call the Constellation of States, the granting of superficial independence to the Bantistans, and they link this with the seduction of coloureds and Indians into the white lager, with many rights, including the franchise, but maintaining the Group Areas Act, which separates the people. Now, two people who say the seduction will not work are Jake's Hareville the Coloured Professor of Afrikaans at the Coloured University of the Western Cape, and M.J. Naido, Vice President of the Natal Indian Congress. First, Jakes Khervel.
9: Hmm. There was a time when I thought that that was a worrying thing, that uh, government could give uh, certain political and constitutional rights to coloured and Indian peoples and exclude Africans from that. And there was a time I thought that that would present a dilemma, that uh, many people would go into that. Um, but the mood has changed so much that I, I have little fear that a significant, significant numbers of colored people would, would fall for that kind of thing anymore. Um, people have learned their power, or the power which lies in the ability to say no to, uh, to things, no, especially to government uh, constitutional devices. Um, and I feel pretty sure too that there would be a, a relatively uh, unanimous rejection of of moves to to form a a non-black alliance, as some uh, cabinet ministers have put it.
1: Now, M. J. Naido of the Natal Indian Congress.
10: Oh yes, they're equally restricted under the Group Areas Act, but uh, there always seems to be a tendency to treat Coloureds as. Uh, second-class Indians as third-class, and Africans as fourth or fifth-class. So if if there's anybody to get a slight advantage, the tendency from government and local authorities is to give the colours sort of a first preference, sometimes very fractional advantage, but still it's an advantage. And as far as I'm concerned, this is part of a deliberate policy, which I term the divide-and-rule policy, so that the one community always looks upon the other slightly privileged and uh, uh, it goes down the ladder that way, you know. Africans look upon Indians as better, wealthier, and more privileged, and Indians look upon coloureds as being treated with greater advantage, and so on.
1: Mahatma Gandhi founded the Natal Indian Congress in 1894 when he was living in South Africa. By the 1950s, it was part of an all-black alliance, the Congress movement. But after the other organisations and about 90 of the Indian Congress's leaders were banned, it almost disappeared for most of the 1960s.
10: Most of us who were there for the revival felt that uh, we shouldn't go on any mass recruitment campaign because uh, by that time there was a very strong feeling of fear among the people to be openly involved in political organizations. It meant firstly the policemen and the security police taking your motor car number down, knocking on your door, speaking to your employer about you being a politician and so on, a radical or a communist. If you're opposed to the government, you have a variety of names against you. And, uh, but we knew where the support was, you know, among the people. And I can tell you from my own experience, you can walk, I can walk in any part of the town, in any community, you know, district, and I know the people are there with me, whereas those people who work with the government, in the government's, you know, specially created Indian councils and local affairs committees, they dare not do the same. Although we can't give you a list of membership, but when we hold public meetings, we get our 1,000 and 5,000 and so on. On the other hand, contrasting very starkly with that is the fact that the Indian Council never once in its entire history from 1964 ever called a public meeting to go before the people to say, we have been appointed as your leaders by the government, we want a mandate from you, or we have this project in mind, we want to recommend something, um, what you people say, you know, we are, after all, your leaders. They wouldn't dare. They knew what rejection they would get.
1: And what about the whites? Is there opposition to the National Party? Alas, there's not a lot the Afrikaners present a united front. They distrust the English-language press and the English-language opposition party, the Progressive Federal Party. But while both shout loud against the Nats, neither totally reject the white man's spot in the sun. Prominent Johannesburg Catholic layman Paul Goller describes the more recent immigrants. Once uh, immigrants arrive here, um, somehow
11: many of them are seduced by the newfound wealth and I think that um, it can probably be said without uh, contradiction that uh, they are better off materially than they were. Um and also that uh they um immediately find a group of people um who can be looked down upon. An identifiable group and this this this, this seems to uh, result in them Bringing to the surface something which I think is, 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 is inherent in the whole of Western civilization, which is a, a, a racial superiority and a racial arrogance towards people of other colors.
1: Archbishop Dennis Hurley, president of the South African Bishops' Conference, accepts that the Catholic Church has been slow
12: to oppose. The official position of the Catholic Church has been formulated over a period of nearly 30 years. Our first declaration dates back to 1952. It wasn't the first declaration by a church because Anglicans and Methodists had anticipated us. But um, our Bishops' Conference was first formed in 1947. And in 1952, at our first plenary session after our formation, we formulated our policy as one that uh, did not accept apartheid looked upon it as an attack on human dignity and expressed the view that all Christians should work for the promotion of human equality, human dignity and the participation of all citizens of a country in its um, politics and economics and culture education. And after that we repeated, um, such a, we repeated these ideas in, in many subsequent declarations so that uh, in theory and in principle our position is very, very clear. In practice, I suppose, we haven't been all that effective. Some people say that apartheid
1: is, is crumbling away slowly, that there's all sorts of petty restrictions on blacks that have been removed over the past ten years or so. Uh, other people say that the, the, the constellation of states concept is a, is a, a much more total type of apartheid. Now,
12: what do you think? That's a very big question. Uh, it's very really hard to come to um, clear conclusions. The whole idea that the Afrikaner nationalists had accepted the need for change has come from Mr. P. W. Both of the Prime Minister. Two years ago he was saying very openly unless we change, we die change must take place. But he has been very careful not to specify what we should change to. It's too difficult for him still because there would be so much opposition in his party and uh, possibly the right wing would take over and oust him. So he has to play the game very carefully. Now it's hard to tell exactly what he means. Whether he means... um, a total change of policy in South Africa. It's hard to accept that. It's very hard to accept that he means a total change of policy in South Africa because much of what he says and much of what he does seems still to support the idea that uh, power and wealth will remain in the hands of the whites and as regards the blacks they will be relegated more and more to their so-called homelands. So that the only blacks who remain uh, in the so-called white area of South Africa, which is 87% of the whole country, will be those necessary for the South African economy. They will be, so to speak, co-opted into the white establishment. There's a great confusion of ideas, a great confusion of uh, statements and declarations, but basically I would say there is no acceptance yet by Afrikaner nationalists of a need to change. And indeed it would be very, very hard to persuade the white population of South Africa to accept this. Whether you mean by white population the Afrikaner section which is 60% or the English-speaking section which is 40%. I think the English-speaking section would uh, have the same mentality as the Rhodesians. A few cosmetic changes here and there, but basically no change to the fundamentals Of white domination. Do you think that, however undesirable, war is probably inevitable here? It looks inevitable. It does look inevitable because uh, it would be against all the lessons of history to imagine that the white people of South Africa could change enough, say in the next ten years, uh, to welcome participation by blacks, real participation by blacks in the running of the country. If they can't welcome that participation, they have to accept war. So my reaction often is a rather poor one that of saying that, uh, humanly speaking, I can't see any solution but violence. As a Christian, I go on hoping.
1: If war comes, it's a war the blacks will fight alone. And whatever way you look at it, you see trouble ahead for South Africa. The laws of domination make life so impossible for non-whites. They are discriminated against at every turn. Some despair and accept their subjection. Some put up a limited fight. Among these latter is Chief Gacha Butelezi, leader of the Zulus. He accepts self-governing status for his KwaZulu homeland, but says he'll never go for independence. Chief Butelezi's political movement is called Inkata. One of its central committee, Durban lawyer Hyacinth Bengu, explains the farce of living in so-called KwaZulu and working in Durban.
13: Take me, I live at Tumlaze, which is KwaZulu. I don't have even a farm to my name. My livelihood is in this office, although at night I'm a Zulu. During the day, I'm an ordinary South African. Now, from 7 o'clock I'm a South African until 7.30, and then at 8 o'clock I'm a Zulu.
1: It, does, it doesn't work. What about KwaZulu, the existence of, of the country as a, a, a self-governing en- entity, has that meant that Chief lazy has been able, as Chief Minister, to to introduce any improvements for his people or does he see it at the moment still as being uh, really just a, a part of South Africa, homeland thing and his job is to, neg- is to negotiate with the government? Uh,
13: he has not been able to do anything. Not because he doesn't want to, but because Pretoria supplies every cent. I don't think there's any field, really, in which he can do anything except by persuading Pretoria to allow more money.
1: The argument been put up that, that um, the existence of independent homelands is very bad uh, for workers because they can be sacked from their jobs and can be hired simply as migrant workers, having been sent back to, say, the Transkei uh, for one month of, of, of the year. The,
13: the official name is Commuters homeland commuters, you see this girl who brought us tea because she lives at Kwamashu is the homeland commuter, every year on the 1st of April her contract terminates, she ceases to be employed by me and I have to give her three rand to take to the office at Kwamashu and pay it there as a levy to enable her to be permitted to work in
1: Durban. It's all a form of degradation, but worse still is to be banned. That's the removal of all rights, including the freedom of association with more than one person at a time. Govan Reddy is banned, so this interview is illegal. For me, particularly, it has been a great burden because it has affected my job.
11: That has been the greatest thing for me, that I was unable to find a job. Uh, ideally, I'm qualified to lecture in a university. That's what I really wanted to do. But because of my political beliefs, I was not given a job at the university. And my second, I chose the second best thing in care that came along, and that was the Institute of Race Relations. And uh, when I was banned, I was forced to leave that job. By whom? By the government, by the Minister of Justice, who signed my banning order, which precluded me from working for an organization that researches or publishes. And my job with the Institute of Research and Publication. So I was forced to leave the job in terms of my banning order. Now once I left that job, I could not do anything that I was trained to do. I have a Master's in African Studies, but I cannot teach, research or publish.
1: So it left me to do something that I was not trained in. Govan Reddy is now a bookseller and not very happy about it. His view of current race relations is fairly bleak too. Uh, It's worse
11: in the sense that the black youth today is much more angry and uh, much more reticent about associating with whites, even liberal whites. Whereas in the 50s and early 60s, the blacks were always prepared to go to whites and talk. Now the uh, feeling very strongly is, you know, whitey do your thing, and we'll do our thing. And when you've sorted out your your problem and converted your whites to a non-racial way of thinking, then we'll talk. But until then, we don't have much in common. So, this is typical thinking amongst a large majority of blacks. So, in that sense, race relations have deteriorated. Uh, but in another area, like, for instance, uh, restaurants and park benches and uh, hotels and shopping areas and these sorts of places, there has been a relaxation in that you would see blacks in places where you would not have seen them five or ten years ago. So called petty apartheid So called petty apartheid laws. laws. This doesn't necessarily mean that there's an improvement in race relations. But certainly whites are allowed to uh, are prepared to give a little more in these areas, which are not really important as far well as blacks go. But they, slight, there's a great, de- greater degree of, t- of tolerance in the social arena than there was before. I find this amongst whites. So in that sense, the, the, the rigidity and tension of the past has gone. Very rarely would you be turned away in, a, in, an, in an abrupt manner from some place where you were not supposed to be previously and also there's integration in post office queues and those sorts of things so there is greater there's a slightly greater degree of contact between black and white in that area but I'm not saying that there's not more repression in the country overall the political situation is much more repressive and the tension is much greater on a larger scale
1: there's no sign that P.W. Botha, regarded as a liberal by Afrikaner standards, is prepared to alter the apartheid regime fundamentally. That's why people like Archbishop Hurley believe war is inevitable, and if and when it happens, the war, political and military, will be waged by the banned African National Congress, which receives the support of masses of people from the revolutionary students to Bishop Tutu. And the whites, in the end, will have to think hard about words like these, spoken to me by... Joe Kabi, ANC representative in Zimbabwe.
14: During interrogation in 1977, um, some white policemen had a tendency of coming to me, uh, security police, to say, yes, Joe, we won't run away, we are not Portuguese, you see, and so on, we mustn't think that we'll run away from here. And this thing was they kept on pumping this number of them one of them was a lieutenant uh, who was from Rhodesia there and one night I thought I must challenge them on this question and I said why are you misinterpreting the policy of the ANC you know you read ANC literature everything about the ANC and you know that the ANC has never been against white people the position the, the policy of the ANC is spelled out in the preamble to the Freedom Charter that South Africa belongs to all who live in it, black and white. That's what you believe in. We, 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 you are here, as far as we are concerned, you are South Africans. Provided you accept the principles of democracy. One man, one vote. And of equality of men, regardless of color, race or creed. There's no problem. I said, you have no... You are talking of not? Of, you are saying to me that you won't run away. I said, of course you can't run away. You can't run away. You have nowhere to go to. Nobody wants you in this world. Not even the sea wants you. The only man that wants you is myself, the ANC. That's all. And I'm going to stay with you. Yeah. And together we will build a new South Africa.